Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. So this is our first episode with our new release structure, which is an episode every other week instead of an episode every week. As I've mentioned before, I'm starting grad school and I'm not able to slow down my day job since I need that to pay for grad school and for our life. But I want to keep You Have Permission going indefinitely. I don't want to take long breaks between seasons. And so it seems like the way to do it is to just go to every other week. And let's be honest, these are long episodes, there's a lot to dig into, and probably there are plenty of episodes you haven't listened to. And so if you really get a hankering, you need more, you can go back. I appreciate all your guys' support and your understanding on this change. And of course, there is one way to get four or five episodes per month total, and that is to become a patron, because patrons get two additional exclusive episodes each month patreon.com slash dan coke or you have permission pod.com click become a patron now on to today's very long episode which will not include a listener question because of its length um this gets mentioned in the episode but i want to mention up top if you have not listened to episode nine on biblical patriarchy with carolyn custis james ideally you would listen to that one first it's kind of a building block of this conversation you don't have to but if you have the time Go back, listen to that first. I know most of you have listened to it because it is the number three most played episode on the show. But if you haven't, go back if you can. 
Now, our main guest today is the Reverend Bonnie Lewis, a pastor and a Bible translator slash writer. But first, I need to define two terms, complementarianism and egalitarianism. This is basically what the episode is about. Complementarianism is the view that God created men and women not only distinctly, but for different purposes. And those purposes line up with biological sex organs. So pastors must be men, meaning they have to be born with penises. To Sorry to say it crudely. Uh, if you are not born with a penis, then you know that it is not God's will for you to be a pastor. If you are born with a penis, then you are the head of the household, as Christ is the head of the church. If you are born without a penis, you are not the head of the household. Now, egalitarians don't necessarily deny real differences between men and women, but they do deny that God has different plans or purposes for people based solely on their biological sex. Now, you don't need to believe that gender is completely socially constructed or something like that in order to be an egalitarian, something that I get into with both Bonnie and Barb. I don't believe that gender is completely socially constructed and I'm an egalitarian. You just have to believe that women can do all the things within the church that men can do. They can preach, they can be elders or deacons, they could teach in church, etc. And you have to believe that being female does not preclude them from doing that if you want to be an egalitarian. So here is the structure of the episode. We first talk with Barb Clark. She is my godmother, a lovely woman. She is not against um, women preaching. In fact, she is an elder at a church where they have a woman who sometimes preaches, but she does have concerns about it, and she's not totally totally comfortable with the fact that she is at a church like that. And so we get into some of her concerns. Then we get into the main conversation with Bonnie, her views. She responds to some common counter arguments from the complementarian camp. And then she will respond directly to particular questions that came up in my conversation with Barb. And then we will go back to Barb at the very end and hear if any of the stuff moved the needle for her. Now, Bonnie did have a cold when we were interviewing, and you can kind of hear her coughing and sniffling now and again, but it's not that big of a deal. So on to my first chat with Barb. So, Barb, Barb Clark, my godmother, my mother's lifelong best friend. It is a joy to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for saying yes to this. Awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Now, sometimes, Barb, when we have these people on the show at the beginning and end, like you're doing, they can be true skeptics. Uh, okay. They, you know, and you're you're not a true skeptic. And we should explain here that you are an elder. You are at a non-denominational church, which has women elders, and also currently the main teaching pastor at your church is a woman, Sally, right? Oh, oh, that is true and not true. So yes, okay. I am an elder at Saratoga, Saratoga Federated Church. We're an interdenominational church uh, located in Silicon Valley. Uh, we've had women elders for a long time, like at least 20 years. Currently, we're looking for a new lead teaching pastor. We do have a woman pastor on our staff, but she is not a lead teaching pastor. Okay. She teaches on occasion, you know, okay. maybe yeah. so, three but times there's no, a year. There's no theological problem 
consensus at your church, which, by the way, is the church I grew up in, uh, with having women preach at least time to time to the entire that is congregation. Correct. Okay. That is correct. Yeah. So you're not a you're not a hardcore skeptic here, or you would not be obviously serving in that capacity as an elder. But you, when I asked you about it, you said nonetheless you do have some questions and maybe even reservations. Before we get to those, can you give us just your basic faith background? When did you become a Christian? What was that tradition? And then uh, if you want to say anything more about the interdenominational church that you attend now, that's fine. Sure, absolutely. So I was raised in the Catholic Church uh, from the time I was a little girl. I had a strong sense of faith and of God and of mystery, how big God was. I had no kind of what you would maybe call evangelical language. I, I'd never heard the terms, have you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, right. for instance, until I was a senior in high school. I had actually graduated from high school. I was on a trip my senior year after high school uh, in Europe, and there were some people on that trip who were Christian like what we think of as maybe more evangelical Christians. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Protestant Christians on that trip made a decision to quote, accept Jesus as my Lord and savior and sincerely have tried to follow him and walk with him in relationship with him since then. Do you think that your relationship with Christ started though, as a Catholic, or do you really not for you, it didn't really start until later? Well, I I didn't think that I really understood that I could actually have a relationship as in something personal. There was definitely, though, I understood that Jesus died for my sins, that God was in his heaven, that I was on earth, that I owed my primary allegiance to him, those kinds of things. But I didn't understand like the fact that I could personally pray to him or that he cared about the details of my life or that when the Bible said the number of hairs on your head are numbered, whatever, things like that, like that would not, I would have said that God was something very distant not something very close. That's so funny because for me, mm-hmm. as we, we can't spend too much time on this because it's not the point yeah. of the episode. But <laughs> as I've come full circle on phrases like accept Jesus, you know, or personal relationship right. with Jesus Christ, it's been almost entirely through Catholic prayer writings. But oh, isn't that Those don't always make it down to every parish or not every priest, you know, yeah. reads St. John of the Cross, for instance. So- you don't, you're Thomas Merton. You don't always have that. Um, mm-hmm. That's just kind of funny, uh, a weird meeting of the worlds. But growing up Catholic, there's no uh, woman mm-hmm. priests. It's all men. They're celibate. That's correct. Mm-hmm. So did you bring that default into your Protestant life? I definitely think I brought that default into my Protestant life. And I should also say here that I'm 63 years old. So, you know, there's certainly something I think that's a little more from my generation, too, Hmm. that um, has to do with what is a role of a woman. But also, I think a lot of my views of the role of women or the purpose of women is just based on reading the scriptures, right? Just, Just a what does the scripture say? And that's where some of my confusion comes. Yeah. I mean, there are certainly a lot of passages that need to be dealt with uh, mm-hmm. because on mm-hmm. their plain sense, they say things like, I do not permit a woman to speak in church or exactly. teach a man. Right. Yes. And so you have to have some way yeah. of, of dealing with that. So would you say that your primary challenge in feeling settled on the issue of 
we'll just call it female ordination. Let's just say mm-hmm. we'll, we'll use that as the thing. So can women be ordained to be preaching pastors to right. gender to all genders? Right. So would you say that your primary concern there is probably just these these stubborn verses that kind of end up coming up in your reading of the Bible? Absolutely. I, I would say that the passages that are in like the first Timothy two passage where he specifically says, I don't allow a woman to teach a man. I mean, I've certainly heard arguments. I, even Paul himself said in another place in Christ, there's no slave nor free, right. um, you know, male nor female. And so, so in some senses, I really understand a scriptural view of equality in the sight of God. I don't feel less than as a woman at all. But, you know, one of the arguments I've heard about the Timothy passage is, well, Paul didn't permit that because it wasn't, wouldn't have been culturally acceptable because they weren't educated. Women weren't educated in things of faith. Hmm. But what's interesting is that Paul doesn't use that as his argument at all. He doesn't say, I don't allow a woman to speak in church because she did not, was not trained by a rabbi and she never had her bar mitzvah or she never went through the kinds of things that most Jewish boys did. He said, I don't allow a woman to speak in church because she was formed after man. Okay. And that she was the one deceived by Satan. And those are a little bit harder verses to come to grips with. Right. Yep. And, um, and so I'm not sure using an argument of education and culture really answers Paul's argument. Yeah. And the education thing is rough too, because there's so many places in Paul's writing where he's like, God has used the the things mm. of the lowly to yes. upset the wise. I mean, right. Paul is definitely not a Ivy League snob by any means. He's actually pushing kind of against that in so many other ways. Well, the other thing I see is that Paul clearly had respect for a number of women in so many of his end greetings, yeah. you know, greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so. Oh, my partner in the gospel to this day. And he calls out the names of women numerous times. So it's very clear that he does see women as integral to the sharing of the faith and to the um, furtherance of the kingdom of God. But there is this aspect of, you know, an elder must be the husband of one wife. A man must lead his family. Uh, I don't allow a woman to speak in church. That's probably the biggest one. Yeah. Right right there. So something that I am pretty sure is going to come up with Bonnie. uh, Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with the conversation over whether the Bible is univocal or multivocal, meaning does the Bible, if, if the Bible is properly understood, does right. it contain one unified message on whatever question you might ask of it, assuming that it addresses the question? Right, right. Obviously, it, even if you don't think it's a science textbook, you could still say, well, how are we saved? The Bible will give you one right. answer on how we're saved. Right. Or the Bible is multivocal, meaning even authors themselves in various writings can be multivocal, can contradict themselves sometimes, can contradict other passages. And in the tension of the multiple voices comes the discernment (laughs) of whatever God would have us do. Are you familiar with that conversation? So I, yeah, so I am not familiar with that conversation and that the, the multivocal versus what was it? 
What did you say? Uh, univocal. Univocal. Univocal versus multivocal. Those aren't terms that I've heard. I certainly have come probably from a tradition of a, probably a univocal tradition. That's yeah. certainly, I would love to say that, oh, the whole council of scripture, if we take the whole council of scripture, what is God saying through that? Okay. So he used people in the Old Testament like Deborah, okay, to lead his people. I would probably say I, you know, my default would be to univocal, right? That that somehow we're going to make it all fit together and it's going to work. But I can see why, you know, those terms are coming into to focus as people are debating about, well, wait a minute, what does this mean here? And how does that fit with other, you know, scriptures? Yeah, we'll see what Bonnie says. I think she's yeah. going to say multivocality is one of the tools we have in resolving this stuff. But it's yeah. worth noting that a handful of episodes ago with Carolyn Custis James, which mm-hmm. we did an episode on patriarchy, which I know you haven't heard yet. She is probably more of a univocal person, but she she her move, her hermeneutic mm-hmm. is to read the rest of scripture in light of Genesis 1 through 3 before the fall. And so that's her move. And so she says, look, all this stuff, all this patriarchy that we find in the world of the biblical text and the world surrounding when it was written, none of that is part of God's plan. God is accommodating patriarchy in the moment because Mm. God cares. But if we want to look to what God really wants from God's daughters, Mm -hmm. it's we find that pre-fall in the narrative. right? So okay. that's one That's one way. But we already kind of did a whole episode on that. And I don't think that's what Bonnie is going to say. But okay. based on my, I've hung out with her for a couple hours and I don't think that will be her point. But we'll see what she says. Anything else you'd like to put in here that we can have Bonnie respond to or does that cover it? That pretty much covers it. Although I will say, I think probably some, one of my deeper questions that I'm very hesitant to even vocalize. That means you because, should definitely vocalize because, it, Because, like, if my daughter or daughter-in-laws were listening to this, they'd probably roll their eyes. But I, I really do wonder, going back to the creation account, I will make a helper suitable for him. Mm-hmm. There is a, a part of me that wonders about the psychology of humankind, mm. of man and woman in particular. And is there something we don't know? Is there something, you know, we'd like to think, oh, we're all the same. We're all equal in the eyes of God. Yes, we are all equal in the eyes of God, but does it mean we're the same? We're not the same. And I think, mm. um, you know, you can just look across cultures and see that men and women have taken on different roles in many cultures and that sometimes those roles are fairly consistent, if, even if it's not a, a biblical, you know, like right. like a traditional religious culture. If it's in India and or something where they don't exactly, care what the Bible says, right? Exactly. And so there is a piece of me that goes, is there a reason Paul wrote that First Timothy that has something to do with the deeper way uh, that I don't know or see. God's ways are my, not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts, right? That's another scripture you yep. can look at and say, I, I, I don't get it all. I don't get all the mystery of how God created male and female and why he made us different. Like, why couldn't we just have asexual reproduction or something like that? But he did make us different and he did make a helper suitable for him. If you want to just go straight to the scripture. And so it makes me wonder, I mean, that's my bigger question is, 
I can be an elder at my church. I can hear a woman preach. I can be blessed by what they say. I can be blown away by some of the great teaching of women of God. But is there a reason that is deeper than inequality or, or, or culture that Paul would say, I don't have a man, a woman teach a man? Is there yeah. something in our, you know, in, in the way that God created us? Right. That's the, that's the, that's really the complementarian argument uh, when mm-hmm. it comes down to it. If you can get past the bad arguments that are sort of hateful or sexist or whatever, the, the better arguments right. are like, look, male and female are different. There's God's got some intentionality in that. And yeah. it looks like that includes teaching or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Right. Um, so two things. Number one, I wasn't mm-hmm. going to require that you listen to the patriarchy episode, but now I am. So okay, you're going to be responding to that and Bonnie because – Carolyn has Ezer as her license plate, vanity plate wow. on her car. She, wow. That is what most of her work in Genesis has been around is that Hebrew term. And so okay. you're going to have to listen to her on that. We're not going to. So that's the helper suitable. To yes. Yeah. She doesn't think it's okay. helper. She thinks that's a very bad translation. Oh, and she's got a lot of oh, evidence for that. Okay, so, good. <laughs> the second thing is the way we might phrase this for Bonnie would be yeah. if we say that women and men are equal before God in that they can both preach that all forms of ministry are equally available to them by virtue of their gender or Mm -hmm. biological sex or however you want to do that. Are we also committed to saying there's no difference between men and women or Mm -hmm. can we say, yes, there are differences between men and women. And also those differences are not related to whether or not, you can a be woman ordained. Could teach, right. Whether a woman could be ordained or That's teach. my view. Yeah. I, I do believe okay. that there are basically bell curve distributions of mm-hmm. various hormones and various inclinations. Mm-hmm. You know, there's estrogen and testosterone. The average mm-hmm. man has like 15, 20 times the testosterone of the average woman. Mm-hmm. Um, these things have, cha- these things make changes. But for me, they're all on a bell curve. So you right. do have men with higher estrogen levels. You do have women with higher testosterone levels. Some women are born. Yeah. With a third chromosome, often mm. they end up in prison uh, mm. and tend to be really kind of traditionally aggressive. masculine and aggressive. Mm-hmm. So there's all these kind of things. And the question for me is just, do they matter for if you can preach the gospel to me or not? Teach right. me from the Bible. So right. that's the question right. that we'll ask. We'll, we'll separate those out because we're not going to answer, nor do I want to particularly tackle the gender question. Uh, okay. And I understand your reticence with your feminist daughter and daughters-in-law, mm-hmm. but we will certainly ask if it can be separated from the theological question. Awesome. That sounds great. I'll great. look forward to it. Barb, thank you so much for your time. I can't wait to talk to you after you've heard both of those conversations. Awesome. Fantastic. Thanks, Dan. Pastor Bonnie Lewis, great to have you on the show. For those who don't know, we did an interview in person at the Bad Christian Conference back in February, was it? And that was so fun. We had a great time. We got breakfast beforehand, and I was... I mean, could we call that breakfast? It was a 7-Eleven breakfast. (laughs) It was a banana, (laughs) but it did feed us, so I guess that it's fair. Conference breakfast. Um, Yeah. (laughs) So if people want to get like a bit more outline of your story, they can go back and listen to that. That interview was on a episode of the Bad Christian Podcast, and it's like 
Bonnie Lewis from BC Con or something like that is the title of the episode. I'll put a link yeah. to it in the show notes. We won't go quite as long on your story because that exists. But for the purposes of our discussion today, mm-hmm. women ordination, women pastors, yes. what do we need to know about your story just so that we can understand where you're going to be coming from theologically and all of that? Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't until I was in college and then also then in seminary and graduate school where I sort of ran into people that told me I wasn't allowed to do this. I wasn't allowed to be a pastor. I wasn't allowed to teach men. I wasn't allowed to do anything of that sort. And it was a long road. I would say like a good 10 years for me to kind of undo my own thought process from being a complementarian into an egalitarian, which was a weird space for me because I wanted to be a pastor and I wanted to be a theologian and I wanted to be all these things. But I also realized that my upbringing had never modeled it and I had never seen an example or heard why someone could be. And then I had all these voices saying, you can't. So my journey is such that I was a complementarian and then became an egalitarian. But it was a long, it was a very long process that I went through to, to get to that place. And that process eventually involved seminary and becoming mm-hmm. ordained. Can you just talk a little bit about what that was like? Was that freeing? Was it empowering? Was it frustrating? Seminary was amazing. I thought it was extremely freeing. I think it really depends on where you go to seminary for it to be that way. So I went to Fuller Seminary in Pasadena. And I, like I said, I kind of went in thinking, I just want to learn more. I don't necessarily think I can be a pastor or a teacher. So through that process, I really had a lot of men, mostly, but also women too, come alongside me and affirm giftedness and affirm saying, no, you're allowed to do this and affirm equality. And so for me, it was really, really freeing. I don't think I would have the views that I had if I hadn't been through it. At the same time, there was an equal amount of opposing voices right outside of seminary. Just, just, and I, I only think that's because I decided to step into that freedom, you know, that was being offered. Yeah, that makes sense. So this is a, a big question and we can spend as much time on it as we want. How do you see women in ministry theologically? Start wherever yeah. you need to start and we'll, we'll just chat. First, I want to say it took me a long time to realize that part of my views growing up and also just kind of getting to where I am now, so much stemmed from Genesis. And I didn't even realize that, you know, I really took just the classic verses out of the New Testament and started there, but I could never really get anywhere. And so I really had to go back to what I think it says about men and women in Genesis. To be clear, and then, as you, you mean, yeah. as you became clear that you were egalitarian, you were attempting to make sense of that just with like Paul and whatnot. And then you realized, oh, no, my intuitions really are starting back in Genesis. Is that what you're saying? Or you're saying when, of, you were, yeah. when you were complementarian? When I was a complementarian. Excuse okay. me. Thank you for clarifying that. Got it. Yeah. And I was seeking, trying to understand these New Testament passages. I see. Just even the way that I approach scripture in general as a narrative from beginning to end, I realized, okay, if I'm going to do this, I really can't just take these passages out of the New Testament. I have to figure out what I believe God created men and women for in the beginning. And so that was really, honestly, the beginning of my undoing, because when I went back to Genesis— the view that I saw in the garden, and I won't go so much into this. You had that awesome episode on the patriarchy. With Car- I was, was going to say, it sounds like you're, you're starting to sound like yeah. Carolyn Custis James here. 
going back yeah, to exactly. She's awesome. She actually. Vision. I was totally fangirling when I heard your podcast because her book was one of my like sole sources of life during my journey. Oh, awesome. Yeah. So it was really good. Her book, Half the Church. So if you haven't read it, definitely do. And so I won't go so much into it, but when I realized that men and women so much were created before this thing that Christians call the fall, which we can get into later, but it's, I mean, that's not even in the text ever as something that's happening in Genesis three. But when we see that they're created and we see that the word used there, you know, is for helper and it's really this suitable substitute and it's this warrior language and that women actually have this really beautiful place in the kingdom of kind of pushing forward things that the spirit is like laying out and just like this redeeming nature of them. That's when I realized, oh, if this is where we're starting from, then I have to read the rest of scripture in light of all of that. So I have a question about that. Yeah. Does it matter theologically if there never was an actual moment in history that was Mm -hmm. pre-fall? So yeah, just to in case people don't understand what I'm getting at, what I'm getting at is that, like, I don't think there was uh, any moment of perfection. Like, the evolutionary record is pretty clear that, right. like, all biological life thrives on biological death. And that has happened forever for, right. for uh, I don't know, three billion years since unicellular life. I have to read that Genesis story as analogical or mythical or sort of like a parable. Yeah. And I can't read yeah. it as history. So does that change anything with this mm-hmm. approach or does it make no difference? No, for me, it makes no difference. So I don't, I also don't believe in a historical Adam and Eve. And I still think, I mean, it's poetry is the genre of it. So I think it's a way that God uses poetry to sort of put in front of us a scenario that we've all dealt with or do deal with on a daily basis. So to not have a historical event doesn't matter to me. I think it speaks to the human form and the human condition and the human ways that we interact with each other and things that quote, like tempt us or ways that we can do wrong or ways that we seek wisdom. Like there's so much about it. So it doesn't bother me at all. In the same way, when Paul talks about Adam and he compares, you know, Jesus to the new Adam, that doesn't bother me that I still don't believe in a historical Adam and Eve for that same reason. And even, you know, Pete N says, and we see this a lot in the New Testament, is that like New Testament writers were always sort of appropriating the story of Adam and Eve to bring about cultural awareness to a situation that they were facing. Not and just so, New Testament writers, but intertestamental writers even more so. The, yeah, like, the exactly. apocryphal and, and the kind of uh, first temple or second temple Judaism, there was tons of yeah. rewriting of the Adam and Eve story. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and second temple as a whole, I mean, deals with the text in such a more creative way than we're used to. And so I think that is part of the problem and was part of my understanding too, is that we do a lot of putting on the text, how we are exegeting it today. And so, you know, I think what you asked is such a fair question because that's normally where our brains are going to go. No, they're not at all starting from the same starting point that we are. They really are taking genre into account. And so for something like Genesis, when it's poetry and it's supposed to be, it's full. I mean, I'm translating Genesis 2 and 3 right now, and it's it's so full of all these sort of mythical and mystic things that we miss because we, we don't know or we don't pay attention to, I guess, the Hebrew language and some of the cultural and historical backgrounds. And so 
in short, no, it doesn't matter to me at all. And in fact, sometimes I think it almost makes it more freeing because it isn't this story of like one man, one woman that we're relying on. It's this this reminder of just like the vast realness of the whole thing, if that makes sense. Yeah. And there's hints in the text. I mean, there, there's actually – I'll save all this because soon I am interviewing uh, Carl Guyberson about the historical Adam and all the – Oh, great. And sort of all the textual stuff and all the options and the genetic evidence and all of that. So we'll, we'll right. put a pin in that. So you're starting with the vision of male and female in Genesis before the fall, not because mm-hmm. that was a moment in space-time, but because it represents something about God's intention – for humanity, for for male right. and female. So where do you go from there? Yeah, so from there, if, if I'm saying, okay, God's intention is that these are two beings that are created equal, and God's intention also is that they are there to care for the earth or tend to the garden and to bring about life and bring about renewal. Well, that's to me, that's salvation language. And so I believe that salvation isn't just this, like, just this moment on the cross. I believe it's so much bigger that this, it really is the renewing of all things and that we get to take part in that restorative process. So if that's true, and if it's also true, as it says, that male and female are made in the image of God, then I think that we are doing the church and we're doing the world and we're doing ourselves, not only a disservice if men and women aren't coming alongside each other equally, but I also think that we're literally missing half the picture of who God is. If you take one person and you say both, or you take two people and both of these people represent the image of God, yet both of those people are clearly different and have different characteristics and different ideas and different gifts and, you know, different whatever. And we exclude half of it then I think that we are missing half of who God is. There's a couple of places to go with that. So before (laughs) I go to the textual problems, let's talk about gender differences or or whatever Mm -hmm. the kind of thing. So Carolyn James says half the church, right? So that's meaning the female half. Some egalitarians want to say that all gender difference is societally constructed. So that would be Mm -hmm. like maybe – a far left egalitarianism. I can imagine a less leftward version saying, no, in fact, men and women fall on sort of probabilistic bell curve distributions in terms of various giftings and various skills. And, you know, this is proven in the psychological research for both children and adults, but there's no theological thing attached to that, meaning there's no category that God thinks of as like, well, you have a penis, so you're good for this. There's a worrisome sort of gender is over if you want it is a shirt that one of my favorite band singers wore one time (laughs) when I saw them play. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true, but I find myself with these theological intuitions about equality. That was a very poorly stated question and response. So Take go wherever you want to go with that. Yeah, no, I, I I totally see what you're saying, and I understand. I think the to be fair, part of my personal journey was I felt like for a while if I was going to be a complementarian because I, mean, I only see men do it, and I'm not talking about women like the Beth Moores who are teaching other women. I'm talking about. I had never been modeled a woman that gets up in front of the congregation or that right. translate a translates a Bible or any of that, and so. I felt like if I was going to be able to do that, then I had to be less feminine. 
if that makes sense. Like, that's just how it felt to me. When it comes to gender and gender differences, like, I would say I'm probably in the the bell curve middle, as you suggested there, is that, like, I'm not... I do see some differences in terms of men and women. I'm not denying that those are there. Yet, I've met people that break those norms all the time. So I'm also not willing to say, oh, they have different differences and everything is, you know, kind of, we can draw these straight lines there. However, I also think that when we step back a little bit, you can do something really beautiful, like for each individual person, if we're to approach it and say, this is what makes me me. And some of that is very feminine. Some of that is a little bit masculine or whatever it is and be able to kind of live in that tension and then use those gifts in any of the places. Like that's what I mean by equality. Again, if God made two people in his image, then then there are this array of different qualities on the spectrum of masculine and feminine that I think sort of point back to a non-gendered God because he encompasses all of it. You know what I mean? Yeah, this is a really intriguing kind of middle way mm-hmm. that I have thought about a lot, which is which is to say, might it be that God has masculine and feminine traits insofar as it's hard to not be anthropomorphic about this. Right. But so maybe if you can abstract masculine and feminine out as as far as possible to like, I don't know, strength and leadership and and maybe femininity is like support and compassion, you know, so there's like making the hard choice and then there's like understanding where all the people who the hard choice is going to affect what, what how right. they're feeling about it. Don't quote me that those are the things that are masculine and feminine. I'm just saying, for instance, we might come up with some list right? and say, look, all of these things are found in God. Humans are created in the image of God. We are going to find all these things in men and women, but we're not going to find them in a binary way such mm-hmm. that – which is why the list – which thing is on the list is less important. Right. Because we're not going to – but we will find them in – probably in a kind of a bell curve distribution sort yeah. of a way. And so that is how we make sense of the fact that there do appear to be differences. They're not mm-hmm. hard and fast, but they are probabilistic. But also right. control for the fact that we don't always find the same differences and not every man is the same. And and actually not every man has the same levels of testosterone and estrogen not every woman right and then there's a bunch exactly. more hormones that are not as popular in the in our lexicon that also matter for this kind of stuff so i like that middle way and I, i'm interested how that middle way would interact with carolyn custis james's idea of let's not cut off half the church so w- would she say something like if half the church are women but not mm-hmm. all women are 100 percent feminine and anyway mm-hmm. femininity is within god like so how do you fill that out so if half the church are women, but all women aren't like 100% feminine, let's say, and all men aren't 100% masculine, right? Mm-hmm. So I guess one could say, well, then you might get a man that has some feminine qualities, and so therefore you're fine. Um, but <laughs> the, um, there are some, I think, differences in terms of, okay, like childbearing is a really good example of something that women do that men don't do. And we see examples or even just metaphors or direction pointed towards women and childbearing and giving birth to things throughout scripture that I think is important, that I think that we can't cut off. Additionally, I believe that society or not, right or wrong, whatever you think, there are women that might have a problem or have an issue that have no one to talk to. And unfortunately, they can't talk to the male pastor because they are called seducers or homewreckers or whatever it is. 
And so who, where do they go? Who can they talk to? So I think in that sense is half the church. When you are, when someone is up on the pulpit and they are preaching and there are women in the audience that are like, I hear what you're saying, but you have said nothing about my own personal journey of what hormones, childbearing, being a wife, being a woman in society who is afraid to go into the parking lot at night, any of those things. I think that's half the church that we're cutting out, not necessarily in pastoral roles, but how they represent themselves in our congregation. I think we totally leave them out of the conversation. Yeah, that's really interesting. There, There's so much there. Oh my gosh. There's so much to motivate why it would be good to be egalitarian, why it would be good right. to have many women in teaching and leading roles. If mm-hmm. only we could get past these darn Bible verses. <laughs> so I'll use that as a transition to my next question. Okay, cool. Yeah. Which is, so you and, and Carolyn, you have these beautiful things to say about Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 2 and 3, I guess, is when the people come in. Mm-hmm. But I hate to break it to you, Bonnie. There's all this other stuff in here that doesn't appear fault. to. Yeah. Well, some of it's Paul. <laughs> some of it's people writing, uh, yeah. depending on who you believe in, in, the, in the voice of Paul, disciples of Paul. So my question is, is the mm-hmm. Bible univocal? Meaning, does it speak with one voice? When it comes to questions around the ordaining of women, or is the Bible multivocal? Yeah. So I think the Bible's multivocal about it. I think that because it's a book that's a cultural document and a historical document, you're going to see these differences as time goes on. So I think that not only historically would you see that just because, you know, hundreds of years have passed, but also culturally you see that because different writers are involved in different situations. However, I do believe that Jesus, what he says about women and how he treats women is very consistent. And so I do think that it's multivocal. I think that there's lots of things going in there. Um, At the same time, some of those things, and I think we're going to get to it, make more sense and may lean towards a univocal understanding of the text when we understand the culture and historical background of it. So I think that our other problem is, and my problem with answering this question as well, is that what we think as women being equal, I don't necessarily think it was the same standards as the writers of the Bible did. And so in that sense, I'm like, well, maybe it was univocal for their time. For us, it looks like, well, he says this and she says that and he acts like this. You know what I mean? So I think that's a hard question. I think, though, if we can take it as a whole and say, what is the the biggest message, despite cultural or despite historical background here, might seem different or might seem odd to us. But I think the goal that's always being pointed to is equality of the gen- of male and female. Yeah. So I guess the way I phrased that was, <clears throat> is it univocal around the ordination of women? I mean, the Bible doesn't really talk all that much about ordination in general. There's a right. handful of passages in the letters that various denominations have tried to let that shape the way that they ordain pastors, deacons, and elders and whatnot. Right. But like, I guess really the question is, does it speak of one in one voice about women about their? Oh, I'm uh, sorry. You know, yeah, no, yeah, I'm that's like, that. You're. I'm no, like, it's so not your I have fault. my seminary hat on. <laughs> like, no, you're. No, you're right. I mm-hmm. I think it's the way that I phrased it, and and so w- you you answered my the second question kind of by saying, 
there is a trajectory here. Yes, uh, and, I, and I do believe that it speaks about women in a positive light as equals as of men. Yes, absolutely. But considering that like most of the Bible is written to ba- people who still identify as Jews, no, there are no passages that say, well, we should may have female rabbis. So that's not in right. the Bible. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it is univocal. There, there's no question about that at the time that it's written. The question for us today is, but is there a ramp that we see? And, right. and does, where does that ramp lead if there is a mm-hmm. ramp? Does it lead to full inclusion of women in ministry? Um, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes. No. So I totally – and I believe that we do see a ramp. I think we absolutely do. And I think it does lead to full inclusion of women in ministry and in society and that everything that that might encompass. So where do you see that ramp? Like what is the evidence for that ramp? How do you read the Bible? Such that when you come to these passages, mm-hmm. not not just the sort of clobber passages, I don't permit women to speak in church, but, you know, Jesus with the woman at the well, all, all the passages that deal with gender, how, mm-hmm. what is your hermeneutical lens? What is your way of reading the text, interpreting the text that, that leads you to the view of this kind of a ramp? Always, I think it's good to always remember, obviously, the culture and historical backdrop of it all, that it was really written under this patriarchal society. So... We see that. And for more on that, there's the episode about homosexuality with Daniel Kirk, which ended up really great one. Yeah, kind of being an episode on patriarchy. That's the thrust of his argument. And so we're going to cover some of the same ground, but we, I think it would be, if people haven't listened to that one and the one and the care one, I think they should, they should probably stop listening now and go back and listen because it really, they really build off each other. So it's like you planned it, Dan. I didn't. Um, I actually didn't, but it worked out well. well. It really did. It did. You did a good job. So, you know, there is this backdrop of patriarchy that the whole Bible is, is really written under. I mean, that was just the norm of the day of society. And so I remember that as I'm reading it and going, okay, well, if this is the norm is what he's saying to break the norm is what someone is saying here, just part of what the norm did and what ways are they subverting? And so the ramp that I do see is that I believe that the Bible is constantly pushing forward through society, that that's the purpose of Jesus. That's the purpose of the Holy spirit. I believe that's, actually the purpose of the text when we use it and understand it correctly, that it should constantly sort of push us forward through more justice, more equality, more redemption. And so if we realize that the Bible is written under this, it's a cultural document written under patriarchy, then some of these texts make a lot of sense and lead us to an understanding of, oh, this is, these are the contexts they were working in. And this is how they brought freedom, even within that patriarchal context. Yeah, so I I love that. It's kind of like controlling for the fact of the context in which it was written. You you basically have to make two moves here, I think, if you zoom all the way out. Number Mm -hmm. one, you have to be willing to say, I don't have to hold every view that every biblical author appears to hold. Now, some people aren't comfortable saying that. Right. But the argument for that is that they appear to hold contradictory views. And so that's my argument for – so I need to be able to say, well, I, I can't hold all of them. Because they would contradict each other. And the next one is you have to say, okay, do I think there's a way to have evidence, strong evidence that I can construct in some reasonable way what people assumed about this topic at the time? And -hmm. then if the answer to that is yes, and if you think there's good evidence for that, and Daniel, we don't have to go into it. Daniel gave a bunch of evidence. He he quoted from Aristotle and Philo of Alexandria. 
and ways that Paul quotes intertestamental literature. There's there's a lot of evidence that there was really kind of a patriarchal assumption in place mm-hmm. at the time. And he also quotes the Ten Commandments where yeah, – exactly. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. She is listed as property basically among other things that are property. Yeah. Um, and so if you are willing to say yes, that is – there is evidence for that view, that worldview at the time, then it's simply a matter of controlling for that. Mm-hmm. And so you go, okay, if that's the backdrop and I'm reading this passage, now how do I look at this different? You know, right. oh, oh my gosh, like what is Jesus doing here? Look at yeah. all the taboos he's breaking. Look at all the rules he's breaking, all the assumptions he's pushing back against. One example that has borne a lot of fruit for me recently is thinking about Jesus talking about divorce, uh-huh. um, how he says, Moses permitted you a certificate of divorce, but I tell you, you know, don't basically don't get divorced. Mm-hmm. And I used to think of that as like, oh, God was soft on people and now God's being a little tougher on them. Maybe people oh, yeah. can handle more ethics now. But right. with the patriarchal lens, it's like, well, hold on. The wives weren't permitted a certificate of divorce, only right. the husbands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so is there an element of of Jesus leveling the gender playing field by saying, no, 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 no none of you can do that. You got to stick this thing out. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to favor sort of one thing over the other. And, and to your point, I think that's really good about what you're saying. Like if you can come to an understanding that, okay, there is a certain cultural context here. I think you also have to almost simultaneously decide what you think the Bible is for in general. I don't know too many people that are comfortable in making that assumption that you just made or coming to grips with, okay, this is a cultural document that still also believe, but it tells me what I should do. Right. Yeah. It's a Bible rule rule book. book. Right. Yeah. 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 Because I think once you come to grips with an understanding, oh, this is a cultural document. And so there's some limitations here. Now you can, like, I believe that to be true. However, I still believe that there aren't limitations on the spiritual implications of it. The discussion there is, is there any document in the world that God supernaturally makes sure contains no errors and is therefore not culturally conditioned in any way? Mm -hmm. And the evidence that the Bible contains no errors, I think, is very slight. And the evidence that it contradicts itself and is not all mutually compatible is, I think, very strong. So well, I and would, I think it actually yeah. does it a favor, right? Like when we oh, can yeah. say oh, these yeah. are contradictory things, it's like, well, yeah, because it's a story about humanity and how God's like continually pushing this trajectory forward. And so we shouldn't have the same things in the New Testament as ideals that we have in the old. Like we even you see differences between like Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Like we just and we shouldn't like if God is moving and we're constantly changing and we're looking and we're seeing where the spirit's going, like we should be coming to new understandings that represent freedom. Like that's just how we should be doing it. Yeah, there's a correlate in our own devotional and communal lives, which is that do we think that there was ever some time in history where anybody had a perfect purchase on the truth? Or do we right. think that it's something that we're always coming to know better? Even if you think that the United States family systems were stronger in the 1950s, mm-hmm. you still had people living under Jim Crow. You still had right. Christian colleges where black and white people weren't allowed to date or get married. So yeah, exactly. it's n- there's never – there's no sort of golden moment 
uh, there's no golden text. You know, this is mm-hmm. I say this all the time, but incidentally, it's helpful for Christians to remember that this is this is how the Book of Mormon is thought of. This is how the Quran is thought of, but not mm-hmm. the Bible. We don't have right. a verbally in uh, a word for word dictation model of inspiration, although right. it can it can get that way in sort of the pews now and again. But that's not actually ever been accepted Christian thought. And, yeah, and it was never how the text was even originally dealt with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it was always dealt with to be worked out in communities and thought on and questioned and wrestled with. It was never like how we set it up now is somebody with authority stands up, tells you what something means, and you just say amen and, and go on. And so that perpetuates this idea that there's a golden moment and that there's these golden people that know exactly what it's saying and you should listen and then your work is done. And I, I don't think yeah. that's even being faithful with the text in the way that it it should be dealt with. And I think that without laying too heavily on my group of origin, I do think that American evangelicalism is particularly prone to accept the idea that the Bible is a rule book. It is mm-hmm. a sort of perfect and non-enculturated document because white evangelicalism purports to be a non-enculturated culture. Right. And there's a lot more about that in a previous episode with Michael O. Emerson about the racial blind spot of white evangelicalism, but it's not just about race. It's about how evangelicalism sees itself in the world. So I will point people to that episode for more about that. But that's maybe a sociological reason why this view has so much purchase in that that world. So, okay, I want to talk about Christian feminism. And can I just start with a confession? Yes. I remember being in my early 20s or something, and for the first time kind of hearing someone say, well, feminist theology, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, feminist theology? Like, isn't it just theology? Isn't right. it just theology? Like, who? what's the purpose of having that? And so I, this has been a long process uh, since then. But talk a little bit about feminist theology, and then I want to get into how Christian feminism is maybe different than certain secular forms of feminism or or how it intersects with those. In, in a sense, your 20-year-old self isn't, I, I don't think, that wrong, right? Like, it really is still theology. Any thoughts or anything we're wrestling with is theology. It's about God. But to talk about feminist theology is to say, hey, we believe that the Bible was written under this patriarchal culture, and we believe that Jesus was on the side of dismantling that. And so how the chips fall there is that he's in favor of, of the woman and elevating the woman. And so then you read scripture with that as your marker for, for all of it. So basically um, what we were talking earlier, controlling for the patriarchal assumptions of the time. And right. then rather than simply reading the text, doing theology with the text, with that same controlling controlling for sort of mental action. Yeah, exactly. And making it sort of, oh, I'm going to see it through this lens versus I think you can do that. And this may be on a spectrum, too. But you you could read the text and go, oh, this has women in it. So I better apply that that lens or the way other end of the spectrum would be every single thing, even if it doesn't mention men and women, is still under this same lens. So I think that's a spectrum that you and can decide where you want to stand on and how you want to read it. But yeah, I mean, that's this... discernment is, is yeah. what, yeah, right. That, and that's yeah. what, one of the things that we get so worried about, especially the, the more fundamentalist were brought up is, well, discernment is kind of a dirty word. We want something 
that is tried and true and unassailable. Mm-hmm. But we're kind of arguing here for the fact that, no, it you have to have discernment kind of always because nothing is unassailable. Yeah. And I think that discernment has been tough, especially with feminist theology or even this patriarchal understanding, because there is, like at least in my fundamentalist upbringing, there is this idea that stems back to Genesis that women can't be trusted to discern the text because Eve was deceived. And so therefore we've inherited how deceived Eve was. And so we are deceived ourselves and we can't be trusted to make a discernment. And so in circles like that, any sort of lens that's a feminist lens at all is already pushed to the wayside because it's like, no, you, you, you can't even be trusted to make that call even about your own self or how you view right. the world. And that that's kind of why I was going, zooming out and saying, you first have to be willing to say, I don't yeah. need to accept every assumption of every writer. Because there right. certainly are passages where the writers really do seem to assume that women can't handle their shit. And so <laughs> yeah. you've got to be able to say, yeah. no, I, I can question that. And if you can't get there, none of this is going to matter. You're probably not listening to the right. show anyway. But okay. So then what's the difference between Christian feminism and then the you know, we, we hear terms like first wave, second wave, third wave, new wave feminism. <laughs> I don't totally know what all those terms mean. I'm not a, right. uh, I'm not very up on all of that. But whatever right. you think is important for this discussion, how does Christian feminism interact with these uh not not necessarily religious forms? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I'm not exactly like the expert on it either. But from what I understand, like they usually talk about Christian feminism in terms of like morally, socially, and spiritually, you're bringing about sort of equality within those realms. And then feminism in the world or outside of the church would be like politically, economically, and then socially and personally. So they, yeah, so they kind of have like, just like another element, but it's my personal belief that like, we've done a great better job outside the church to advance feminism. I mean, anything from you bought land in your name, you have a credit card, you, you know, there's, there's so much stuff that we take for granted that we don't even think of. For me, I think that they could each adopt each other. Like if we're going to be feminists in the church, I think we would naturally agree in the world that like politically and economically as well. But the problem is I'm disturbed that outside the church that we have done a better job. I'm embarrassed that on the inside of the walls, we're like still lagging behind. Like when I talk to my friends who aren't Christians and I say something like, oh, well, they didn't, you know, they walked out of the sermon or whatever because I'm a woman. They look at me like I'm insane, like my hair's on fire because they don't understand that at all. Because, sure, there's issues where women might not have the same pay rates or, you know, different things that we see in the workplace. But to have the idea that women are like literally fundamentally created less is something I think the church wrestles with. Whereas I'm not quite sure if that's also the ongoing conversation outside of the walls of the church. Yeah, I think I have a lot more compassion and understanding toward that particular thing than your secular friends mm-hmm. because people just find so much value and and they find community and they find sort of structure for their lives on earth in their faith communities right. and through and through the bible and and mostly they don't come to these views on their own they inherit them they're this is the the thing about being contextual uh, we are all raised into some particular tradition Right. Whether it is robust and all-encompassing, like you're a Hasidic Jew in Brooklyn, or you know whether it's you're a cultural Christian in Ohio. I mean, there's all kinds of levels of that, mm-hmm. and religion is sort of undeniably beneficial in all of these ways, and 
and forming and and all that. And so, in a sense, this entire podcast project is is a way of saying, well, is there a way to keep that overall value add while following where God is leading us in ways where we need to diverge from from tradition and and the discernment thereof? Basically, right? Yeah, right. I really think like you can see the Holy Spirit moving in some of those things. Like any step towards equality, I think is the Spirit moving and he'll do it within the church or outside of the walls of the church, you know, no matter what. So, I mean, that's sort of how I view it. But I would be interested to know, and maybe there's people listening that do that, that would really draw a sharper line between Christian feminism and then, you know, the classic understanding of feminism. Because I, I do know some people who are comfortable with me being a Christian feminist, but not a classic sort of feminist. And so I've never had a problem with it, but I think some I think some people do because kind of going back to what I just said, there there is an understanding or people have an idea of, well, God moves in these spaces or like we know that's of God versus if we see something out here, we're not sure. You know, does that make sense? And I think people are uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I think there's also maybe a case to be made that like certain thought leaders in certain waves of feminism make some kind of arguments that are incompatible with Christianity, probably. I don't yeah, know that's fair. who those people are, or what those arguments are, but right. if, for I mean, instance, it's, it's, yeah. of course it's happened. Yeah. I'm sure it's happened. And so then, and then how much of that gets sifted through the media and, and which sound yeah. bites are you hearing? You know, so there, there's all those yeah, complications. That's fair. Yep. Um, I agree. You know, would you forgive me for saying that I think that now is especially the time to consider becoming a patron of this show? You know, we're going to two episodes a month now or every other week. So that'll be two or three, depending on the length of the month. But there's two more exclusive patron only episodes that come out every month. And uh, this week or last week or whatever, the one that came out was for a conversation about single predestination with Andrew Kays. He is a Lutheran pastor and also a patron of this show. And we got into a chat about um, really after the Tulip episode, which was about Calvinist double predestination, the idea that God predestines uh, those who are saved and those who are damned in the same move. And Andrew was like, you know, there's another way of looking at it. It's kind of a Lutheran way, and it does not involve God choosing who is damned, but it does involve a real act of predestination for salvation on God's part. And I thought, hey, I don't really know much about this. Let's talk about it. We had a great conversation. Uh, Here are some clips from my conversation with Andrew. Calvin, on the other hand, viewed scripture as utterances from God. That's why his argument from pro- double, excuse me, for double predestination brings in narrative stories like Jacob and Esau, among others. Luther will bring in those narrative stories, but they're not the linchpin of his arguments. Uh, Calvin takes them and then universalizes them. And I doubt most Calvinists would agree with what I'm about to say, but from the outside looking in, it sure seems like Esau's story, for example, is weighed awfully heavy when yeah. compared to Jesus. Yeah, like almost the same. I'll bring up Romans a lot, probably, because Luther figured we ought to read it every day and memorize it. It's the best summary of the gospel and what our relationship with God uh, as humanity looks like or should look like. I'll, I'll say does. Look I'm like. already feeling triggered by that, but OK. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, that's fine. I, are- I'm going to leave my uh, leave my own trauma at the door. We're going to have this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, impacts of Christ's victory over sin, death, and the devil is uh, on our will. That bound by sin. Uh, this is going to be important to the argument. Bound by sin, we simply don't have the will to do the right things to mm. be to come to God in the right way, uh, and then. In the new age, we'll all have a proper will and live in proper relationship with God. So here we're in this liminal space, this in-between time, uh, in which, because of grace, our will is freed to be in proper relationship with God Mm. in the meantime here. God has the authority to decide who goes to heaven or to hell. And, And for Calvin, it's even more dramatic than that. God's majesty demands that God do so. Uh, so God does decide, not maybe not as a matter of will, but as a matter of necessity, because in order to demonstrate God's majesty, God has to send some folks each way. And those who are saved by, are saved by grace, and those who are condemned are condemned such because that grace is not afforded to them, and it turns out condemnation's what we all deserve. Uh, oh, gosh. Okay, keep going. <laughs> and then the <laughs> <laughs> I hate that so much, man. I'm sorry. I just have to take a breath. I just, the, I just the, the, can't. I uh, I don't even like <laughs> hearing I don't even like hearing those phrases even in an academic dispassionate setting like yeah. this. So I just have to like I need a palate cleanser. Remind myself that God loves God's creation. Okay, continue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you mean specifically like the condemnations? What we all yes, deserve? gosh, yeah. come come. It's gonna be hard, on, to- man. <laughs> Seriously, it's be hard to get around stuff like that. Yeah, talking talking about these. Um, Just how much self loathing? I don't. That's not a good argument. I'm I'm being emotional right now. Which eh. the, the third camp, of course, is single predestination, in which God ordains it such that everyone be saved by grace. Uh, and I would add, I mentioned earlier, I think before we started uh, rolling, that I would put universalism in this camp as well. Uh, but how we parse that out could vary. Okay, so let me just make sure I understand what you're saying here. So I think you're saying single predestination includes that God has predestined that everybody be saved. It's just that we are able to thwart God's purposes because we have will. Something like that? Uh, Yeah. And it's not just because we have will. It's also because of what we understand God to be based on God's self-revelation. To be very specific, that God's not a tyrant. Because of what you just alluded to, that there is this paradox in Scripture uh, that C.S. Lewis and then, of course, Rob Bell making it famous again a few years ago really get into that uh, there's plenty of verses about God wanting everybody to be saved, the whole world reconciled, the whole world united, that sort of thing. And then there's also a bevy of verses and stories about people being judged and that not happening uh, with those certain groups. It seems like when you acknowledge both of these types of scripture passage, you kind of have uh, – you've got three options. You can interpret the wideness of God's mercy passages in light of the harsh judgment passages. That seems to me to be Calvin's approach. You can and say, well, the, you know, the, har- the wideness of mercy ones, they, you know, they, they don't really accurately describe the way things are going to go. You can do the reverse, which is what a lot of universalists will do, like Rob Bell. 
interpret the harsh passages in light of the wider the wideness of God's mercy passages and that or you can do what you what I think you're trying to do which is to hold those two passages styles of passage equally in tension and I usually when I say something like that I'll say that third option is the best one I'm not sure I believe that for a different reason, uh, but I think that's what you're doing, right? And that seems to me to yeah. be a reasonable position, especially like it's a humble position. It's like we don't have all the data. Here's some data that we have. We're going to we're gonna see if there's a way to hold both of these and, and have a system that is internally coherent. Right. We can allow the paradox to be a tension and not a contradiction. Yeah. John talks about us as if we're all in one basket. It's not uh... – some in, some out, because they're chosen or not chosen, or because they do the right thing or not. Uh, yeah, so I just wanted to touch on that. You just wanted to really quickly resolve the dis- dispute between Luther and Calvin. Yeah, no big deal. For us real uh, quick here. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to hear the rest of that conversation, or by the way, any of the previous patron-only episodes, they're all available to you once you sign up to become a patron. Um, Of course, that's not the only thing you get. I routinely field questions for guests um, from the Facebook group, and the Facebook group is for patrons only. That group has also become a really awesome community. People will throw up questions they're having, aspects of their faith journey or what they're going through right now, stuff about dating and sex and spouses with different faith convictions and all this stuff. Uh, there's a big range of ages. It's really becoming an awesome uh, online community. And uh, also I, I poll that community and find out what you guys want me to talk about um, and uh, sometimes voting on which questions will be answered or which episodes will come out next. It's just rad. It's just an awesome community. Um, the Patreon starts at five bucks a month. You can give more if you want. There are various tiers. Uh, if money is a problem, there are some sponsorships. Send me an email. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. And uh, also, if, if your spouse is a patron, feel free to join the Facebook group and be a part of the discussion. Uh, yeah. So patreon.com slash Dan Coke or you have permission pod.com. Click become a patron. I think now is really the time. Now's the time to do it, to pull that trigger. Um, all right. Back to my conversation with Bonnie. Okay, you've strapped on the breastplate of righteousness <laughs> and the helmet of whatever. Yeah. Um, okay, here we go. We're just going to get your responses to some common complementarian counter arguments. Number one, Genesis 1, 26 through 27 mm-hmm. makes clear that male and female are equally created in God's image and so are, by God's created design, equally and fully human. So far, so good. Yep. But as Genesis 2 bears out, their humanity would find expression differently in a relationship of complementarity, with the female functioning in a submissive role under the leadership and authority of the male. Your response? For Genesis 2, there's so much there. Okay, so first of all, there's a lot that we put back on these verses. And some of it was to bring up questions that came up as a church. And so it was just as the 
kind of New Testament, intertestament writers did use Adam and Eve to culturally appropriate. So we see, we see Eve and she eats of the tree and we see Adam and he eats of the tree. And then what follows is like these curses that God sets onto Adam, Eve, and the serpent. Well, what's interesting about this whole thing is that God actually, in the Hebrew and the way it's written, he's actually only curses the serpent. The things that he says to the serpent is like a curse, like this will now be you. And, you know, some of that is really explained in an ancient Near Eastern context. So when he says, like, you will now be on the ground, that's like a lowly position because serpents in the ancient Near East were actually always depicted as like being upright, as like a position of power. And so he's now saying, like, you will no longer have that power. Now, the language is different for Adam and Eve. It's not a curse language. He's not saying, this is what you will be doomed to. He's more saying, this is a natural consequence of what's now happened. But what's interesting there is that language is not authority. It's really tied to actually sexual desire, but in a good way. It says, like, Eve, your pains will be in childbearing, and then the man will rule over you. It's He's actually talking about who you are as a woman. You will want to have children. I'm advancing the world through you. You will want to do that. It will be extremely painful. And this is just the way the Hebrew is written. However, you will have a desire for your husband that is greater than, like, basically remembering the pain that it puts you through. And so you will keep getting pregnant. And he's just like telling her. But what about the part, but he shall rule over you or whatever? What's that part? Like that is the rule over you is like how he appeals to you sexually will rule over your like, oh gosh, like to go through childbirth or whatever it is, is a painful experience. You're the power of the attraction that you have towards him and towards each other. And all of that will be bigger than these pains that you have. And so in that sense, it's actually something very beautiful. He's saying like, hey, I'm going to advance the world through you and it'll be painful, but the road to get there is beautiful and full of something that you can enjoy. You know what I mean? So it's not like this awful curse thing that we think of it as. Interesting. So here's a a potential problem. Does Paul himself seem to use Genesis 2 or are we just reading Genesis 2 through Paul? That's my first question. Yeah, so I think we read Genesis 2 through Paul. I also think then we circle back and we re- when we read Paul, we do the same thing. So Paul, like we said before, like I think he's in some senses culturally appropriating and and like to be clear the verses like some of the verses that we're talking about when he says like man is head of the woman and he's talking about headship The Greek there is like people have debated over it forever. Like, is he talking about authority or is he talking about another word you can use there is source. And so if you go with this, with the source idea, which has, which stands up contextually because the way Greek is structured, because there's so many different words that mean so many different things. If you're going to take a word and you want a negative definition for it, you're going to take all the other words in the sentence to line up to also be negative definition words so that you the reader understands sort of the connotation of what you're saying. But the authority word there, it can be something negative or it can be something positive like source would be a better, um, maybe a better translation of it. And everything else in the sentence source would be positive is also in positive connotation and the words that are paired with it. So if we go from that sort of linguistic approach of going, okay, textually, what does this say in terms of the original languages? A better, I, a better thing of what he's saying is he's developing this source relationship and saying, 
hey, God created man first, and out of man, he created Eve. So Adam's source of life is God, and then Eve's source of life was Adam. But again, I think he's not taking it literally. I think we think he is, and we put that on him. I think he's using it more in terms of developing this sort of symbiotic relationship of saying, hey, we all come from each other, and we all come from God. And so we need to, he's trying to level the playing field in a way that his contemporaries are going to understand it. Okay, this stuff is pretty complicated, and I don't know the languages stuff, so I'll just take your word on that. Okay. <laughs> this next one, we're we're kind of we're we kind of got to it here, but I'll mm-hmm. read it and we'll just see if there's anything else you want to say. Mm-hmm. As most complementarians understand it, Genesis three fifteen and sixteen informs us that the male female relationship would now, because of sin, be affected by mutual enmity. You're saying that's not what it says. In particular. Mm-hmm. The woman would have a desire to usurp the authority given to man in creation. So they're saying Mm -hmm. your desire will be for your husband means your desire will be for the authority God gave your husband that he didn't give to you. And man, for his part, would rule over woman in what either could be rightfully corrective or wrongfully abusive ways. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that's this is the the claim. What do you want to say about that? So I think that stems from the idea, first and foremost, that when God created man, that that was God saying, okay, you're first in the order, and then I'm taking woman out of you, and she is your subordinate helper. So if you believe that to be true, then what this person is saying makes a lot of sense, right? It's like, no, this is the creative order of things. But I don't believe that that's what the text is saying in general. I think the text in general is saying, no, male and female, he created them. And the way that he created Eve was to be this warrior. It was like his better half. His, not even better half, but like his second half. Like he almost wasn't whole. Like the idea, it's not good for man to be alone. Isn't like, oh, he's lonely. It was literally like, this isn't a full picture yet. And so my kind of sort of crowning achievement, like now we have a full picture of creation that that woman is here. So I don't believe that Genesis gives authority like that. I think that if in in the text, it was designed to be equal parts from the get go. Next common complementarian argument. There were no known women pastors in New Testament times. Is that true? And if it is true, does it matter? No, it's not true. I think it's true if we think of the pastors like we are now, right? So like somebody going around and preaching and, you know, I don't know, doing what evangelical pastors do. But it was a different defining thing. I mean, disciples created different disciples that happened all the time. People were deacons, which were said to be leaders and teachers. And so we actually have a lot of different examples of that. So like I wrote some down because it's it's important. So like, first of all, here's one super easy, Mary and Martha, right? So you have them and, you know, the, the story always goes like, you know, you always hear that, like, are you a Mary in a Martha world? Like, or are you a Martha, whatever it is. Oh, and yeah. Uh, oh yeah. You know, and it's just this story about these women and like one's listening to Jesus while the other one's too busy. But really when she's sitting at his feet, that's actually language of a disciple, that's Jesus saying, listen, I'm going to teach you and raise you up as a disciple, as a leader, as a teacher. So then, then you can go and create more. So everybody that read that during that time would understand that that's the position you take in front of a rabbi. 
to become a disciple. So there's one. Another one is like you always see this group. You see Jesus and his disciples. You see the 12 disciples who are men, which is like the 12 tribes of Israel. But then you also see kind of this, they don't ever say how many, but this group, and it's referred to as the women. And it's other female disciples who did the exact same thing that the male disciples did, who followed Jesus around, welcomed him to their home. They financed his ministry. Sometimes there's even examples of them teaching the male disciples different things through their acts of love. And so for me, like if they're going around and they're doing the exact same thing that the male disciples are doing, they have the same role. Now, they're probably not mentioned because, again, it's a patriarchal society, and I think some of that stuff gets kicked out. If you're like trying to make a case, I mean, like you said, they're trying to bait people. Or you're trying to make a case for this new religion. Like that's a, not a popular view to probably take. You also have in Romans sixteen seven. it's actually like just very short. And I am going to say the name wrong. It's very short, but it's her name's like, it's spelled J-U-N-I-A. Junia. Junia, maybe. Um, but she's addressed in there as, as taking part of like sort of the spreading of the gospel. And so that's in there. And then you see Phoebe also in Romans 16. She's listed as a deacon who was thought to be a teacher and someone who did the same thing that like a male deacon would do. So she's in there as well. And then, you know, you also see in 2 Timothy 4, Paul greets Priscilla in his letter. So you have Priscilla and her husband's in there too, but she's always named first, Priscilla and then her husband's name, which anytime somebody's named first, like by name, it's they had the more prominent role. So the fact that Priscilla's even named first is huge. And he, you see again in Romans, he like addresses her with high praise and he, and even I think in Acts, it tells us that she led the Ephesian congregation when Paul was gone, which means she stepped in. She acted as pastor for all intents and purposes. So we see it all over. You have to look for it. And it's not in the same sense that we see pastor. And we, I think we write it off because it's not one of the 12 disciples. But at the same time, it makes total sense to me why it's not included in there. And I don't think it's because it's important. I think because when you have a document and then it's written under and then also formed under a patriarchal lens, the things that they're going to highlight is to further that system. Yeah, you might say that if you're willing to control for the patriarchy of the time, that mm-hmm. there's just incredible amount of references to women who are in some sort of leadership role. Right. Yeah. You you also brought up the 12 and I brought this up to Carolyn in our conversation, uh, but I'd heard it in a sermon that in the end, you know, the 12 were all men, as if that the only reason for Jesus to choose them would be to keep it all men is that he only wanted men. But that just seems like there's a whole lot of possible explanations. There's the fact that they are traveling constantly, mm-hmm. you know, and like sharing, they're bunking up. Right. Uh, I mean, because men and women, they couldn't even be in quarters together. So, right. Given yeah. the time. Yeah. I also think it's interesting, like, Maybe old people shouldn't preach because none of the 12 were old. Right. I mean, like, do you want to say that? Yeah. Okay, next one. And now we're kind of digging into Paul. Okay. Paul uses Genesis 2 to support (laughs) his contention that women need to display in the church their submission to male leadership. The woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head (laughs) because she is the glory of man, because she originated from man, and because she was created for the man's sake. Because Paul links the woman's submissive role in the church to God's created design, it is evident that these instructions to the church at Corinth 
are not only applicable there, a common counterargument, but instead are applicable universally in the church. I, I would go further in this in this passage. This is uh, we're in First Corinthians eleven here. Paul says, "Is it not is it not clear from nature itself that a woman's glory is her covered head, and a man's glory is his uncovered head?" I I usually use that to go. Oh, I don't need to take this literally because that's a crazy argument that Paul's making. Yes, um, <laughs> you're being what's crazy. Your, what's your response to to this usage of Genesis two by Paul? We've talked about it a little bit, but right. now we're getting into some of that specific wording. Yeah. So, okay. First, I think we need to remember, I always like to just like go through the checklist almost. And so like epistles, like all these letters were never written to us. They were never be to interpret it as like universal laws, right? So something that can tip us off is like we see a bunch of details that are discussed. And then we also see attitudes that are discussed. And so for me, like I like to sort of differentiate here. And so does, I know I've heard Rachel Held Evans talk about something similar is that the details are cultural details. Attitudes are something that we can apply spiritually. What does that mean for me? So a detail, for example, in this passage might be a head covering. Like even, even if you're a complementarian and you agree, okay, this passage tells us, you know, we shouldn't do X, Y, and Z, then to me, then they should make women wear head coverings or another passages. I was just going to say that, that if you're going to say that this means women can't preach, then it certainly means women need to cover their heads. Oh, women have to cover I, their heads. Exactly. I don't see how you get around that. Well, and a lot of times you hear people being like, well, no, that just means, and you're like, no, it just doesn't mean anything. It either means the head covering or it doesn't. Yes, so, and, and this particular guy is arguing that, like, because he links it to God's created design, mm-hmm. it's it's universal. Mm-hmm. And so, but the thing is, the part he didn't say is that the head coverings are also linked to God's eternal design. Is it not clear from nature itself? So right. it, maybe, but then why aren't we fulfilling this all the way to the letter? Right. Yeah, exactly. I don't have a problem at all when Paul is calling in certain senses like women to respect men or men to respect women because that should just be true anyway. But in this particular passage, something else that really strikes me, and we see this again in in a Timothy passage too, but is with a different situation, is that there was a cult during this time, and it was like, I always get this name wrong as well, but it's uh, Dionysiac. Uh, oh, it's it's the cult of Dionysus. Yeah, no? but I can't. Yeah. Yes, you're right. So I could just the say god that. Of, goddess of wine in Greek mythology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so there was this idea. So like, think about it like that. Like these are new churches, right? And this is like really a new religion. You know, they're trying to figure out who Jesus is and what this means is for the church. And so I think Paul's more concerned with saying... What is it that we can do to set us apart? Because during that time, so Dionysus, like you said, the goddess of wine, was this idea that they would get totally drunk and then engage in all these different sexual behaviors as part of their worship. And so Paul's more concerned that people, if women don't act a certain way towards men and men don't act a certain way, and we don't remember this symbiotic source relationship that we're in, people might confuse us for this other cult. And we can't do that because we are trying to tell people who we are and what we're about. And here's how you can tell the difference. Here's how men and women function together. I can't believe that that Dionysus cult could ever become popular. What did people possibly see? (laughs) In, uh, yeah, in those exactly. rituals. Well, and maybe Paul even being like, hey, look, I know that sounds like a party, 
but (laughs) this is what we were created for. Next one. None of the instructions regarding (laughs) church order, so deaconship, pastorship, whatever, discipline, church discipline, include instructions for women pastors. And some texts on church order explicitly forbid women to occupy that role. For instance, Paul in 1 Timothy states, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Again, for me, it comes to, well, what's going on in the culture? Like why? Paul's not right. I mean, Paul's writing these letters to these churches because usually there's a problem. There's something going on. And so Paul's like, okay, here's like, here's how to get your shit in line. This is is how to deal with it. So we have to remember that. I mean, I think we kind of sometimes assume Paul's just like, you know what? Now I'm going to tell this one church a piece of the puzzle on how to behave and this right. other church, a piece of the puzzle. And he's another really, piece of the puzzle. Yeah. yeah. And like, that's not it. He's, he's responding to situations that the churches are encountering. And so one thing we see here, and we see this in Timothy five, it's spelled out too, is that Ephesus had inherited a bunch of new women, people into the church. And a lot of them were, were widows. And as you know, in a patriarch society, a widow, is not a position you want to be in as a woman. I mean, those are screwed. You're screwed. You're damaged goods. You probably don't have any money to give to someone to marry you. You probably have children. I mean, so for somebody to come and like marry you again is your, is likely none, but also you, you're screwed. You can't work. You can't, I mean, there's so many things like, so a widow's desire would be that someone would find them enticing you and someone would want to marry them. And so, the idea here is that there was a bunch of women who were coming into church and basically sort of dressing provocatively and sleeping around, inter- interrupting the church with questions and, and different things like that. So that's going on. And then at the same time, there's also a fertility cult of from the for god of fertility, Art- Artemis. And that fertility cult also showed the same type of behavior. Right. So like women in that cult, because it was a fertility cult. And so having sex would be an act of worship for the God or for the goddess. They're sort of showing that same type of behavior because they also want male suitors to come because it's part of what they believe in, in terms of in terms of their religion. So you have all of this happening at the same time. And so I think he's saying, like, I'm giving Paul the benefit of the doubt. (laughs) Women an underlying thing might be like, you don't have to do this. Like, I would like to believe that he had an understanding of just like, you know, you don't have to display yourself in this way. Um, But I think more importantly, what we see here is he is more concerned with false teaching. And he's also concerned with people understanding again, who they are. And we know it was a big deal because it shows us that Caesar even ended up making laws about how women in this cult and then women in general and even prostitutes were allowed to dress because it was such a huge, like, systematic thing oh, wow. within society. Yeah. yeah. So it's not like, oh, it's this tiny thing that people worshipped, and so I'm just, like, grabbing that and sort of putting it into Paul's day. Like, it was a big deal. We see in history books, like, there were laws made about dress codes because of this cult. And I also think it's clear. I think if he, for me, I look at that and I'm like, well, if Paul is prohibiting something here, I think that's a good sign that shows it's allowed elsewhere, right? Because there are some things that are just unwritten rules, right? He doesn't have to say things that everybody's abiding by. But if he's saying, hey, I 
prohibit women to teach in this situation, then that should tip us off that there are some situations and other situations that women are allowed to that Paul thought it was fine, and that there was something certain going on within this context as to why women shouldn't teach. Um, and it was because in this fertility cult, these women had sort of... Um, false doctrines or false teachings and same things with widows who wanted to come in and sort of get these suitors. And so he's warning against, hey, you're allowed to teach. You just have to be trained to do so, just like a man would. And also, I don't want people thinking that we are part of this fertility cult. We are something totally different. And so here's how we're going to show them that. So this next one is not an argument that you've made, but I think that people commonly will just sort of throw out Neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, oh, uh-huh. as like a though that that solves it. Or it's a proof texting from the left, and this uh-huh. uh, this response is saying that verse is not a reference to abilities to do ministry or have authority, but rather it's in context. It's clearly a reference to salvation. Salvation is equally available to all, but that says nothing about pastoral questions. Can I take a crack at this one and then you see yeah. what you say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would just say. Sure. I mean, maybe that is all Paul means in that particular context. But one of the things that we are have been talking about is, do we feel like we must simply discover what Paul meant, the authorial intention of Paul? Or are we willing to control for the cultural context and see what God is trying to say by getting this thing in the scripture despite the context? And so I would want to take neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, as one of those moments where the kingdom of God really shines through Paul despite himself, despite his Mm, circumstances. mm -hmm. And that's one of the points, the data points on the ramp, as Mm -hmm. we were saying earlier. Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think it's really great. And I also don't feel the need. I mean, I think some people feel the need to take all the statements and make sure they apply. I don't feel the need to do that. So if in context, it doesn't say anything about pastoral questions, then fine. But what I would like to say to that end is, okay, if this does have something to do with salvation, I think we need to take a look at what we mean by that. And if we think that salvation is just getting ourselves to heaven, then that means one thing. But if we think salvation and the entire trajectory of what God does through salvation and through saved people which is bring redemption and continually push forward equality, then I think it makes a big difference to like what you're saying that we do dig deeper. This next one we can probably deal with pretty quickly, given what we've already said. The church order goes hand in hand with family order, where the man is the head of the wife and of the household. I mean, I guess it just... I don't personally agree with that at all, and I don't think there's theological basis for it either. Okay, this one's interesting, and this is the last of these common questions. We will have questions from Barb later on, but this is the last of the the bulk that I prepared. There is a hierarchy within the Trinity. Mm -hmm. The persons are equal in essence, but distinct in function. You can see where this is going. Mm -hmm. The Spirit is subject to the Son, who is subject to the Father. This models for us the hierarchy between men and women in terms of their equal essences, but distinct functions. Are we reaching here, Bonnie? <laughs> I think we are. I think we are. First of all, I want to know, just because you have a different function, what makes that hierarchy? I don't think that's, you know what I mean? I don't think I agree that the son is subject to the father in no. some eternal sense. There's There are passages about when Jesus is on earth. Jesus right, is willingly submits to the will of the Father. Right, but, he's but a human I don't being at that point. 
Yeah, I, I don't think, I think if we're going to say the Trinity is like a hierarchical structure, I think that we have a misunderstanding of the Trinity. I don't think any theologians really would say that it's a hierarchy, that I'm, I've never heard that before. I've heard it from Wayne Grudem. Ah, okay, that's probably where it's coming from. All right, so we got through those major common arguments. I want to, I have a few more questions for you before we get to my wonderful godmother and her questions. What do you worry happens if we get this wrong? In other words, I, I guess I'd like to hear either side. What happens if we're wrong, if you and I are wrong, and then what happens if Wayne Grudem is wrong? I think if you and I are wrong, still more people hear about the gospel. We see a bigger picture of Jesus. We see, I mean, of God. We see a big picture of God. We see more people to have a connection point with God and have an encounter with the Spirit. I think if we get it wrong, there's grace because we all hold wrong beliefs. We're all doing our best and we're all trying to kind of bring about and be a part of this restoration of all things. So if if we get this wrong, I don't think it's damaging to anybody. Hmm. I don't know if you agree with that. That might be a blind spot for me. But for me, <laughs> it doesn't seem more people being included in the kingdom of God in terms of whether it be in leadership or even just seeing it or feeling like they have a they have a place here. I for me, I don't see anything wrong. Well, there's certainly I mean, there's certainly if we're wrong, there's there's no consequence for like salvation. There's nothing No. Nothing about the divinity of Christ or the atoning of sins or I mean there's nothing like that. Right. So the consequences can't be that big. Right. Uh, I and, mean it And can't. what about if what about if we fail to include women? I think we ought to have. Yeah, I think that is where we risk half the church being left, being excluded, feeling like they don't have a place, feeling like they're not important, feeling like they um, aren't loved the way that they are, that they are created less. So I think that it will further perpetuate some of the patriarchal culture that we live in now, just in terms of sort of male having authority in that way. But I think the other problem is, I think if we get this wrong and we don't sort of include women and we don't further this, I think the church itself is at risk of dying. I don't know too many people that will say they might still follow Jesus, but I can't see them willingly participating in church if church is saying, hey, you you aren't equal. And so I think the system that we know it will break down quickly. And I think that's a huge disappointment. How do you talk about this issue with people who nonetheless disagree with you on it? Like how how do you love them despite the, what I assume, hurtful position that they take? And the reason I say it's, I assume it's hurtful is because you're a practicing ordained woman. And then there are people who say, I think that that is by definition sinful and against God's plan. How do you Love them despite that. I do believe, and because that was me for a while, so that we really all are on a journey. So I don't have a problem interacting. I don't even have a problem having a conversation as long as the goal is to hear each other and to have a conversation. So I also, though, practice a little self-care and self you know, like perseverance. And I don't, I don't engage in conversations where it is going to be just outright hurtful for, for the sake of being hurtful. But something I have found to be, to be helpful is that there are people that are going to disagree with me no matter what I do. And no matter what I say, the bummer is that I don't think they would always disagree if I was a man. 
And I have to remember that. So sometimes when it... You have to control for it. I have to control for it. Exactly. Just so, to be a just to be a sane person, you have to control for that fact that you have to control for the patriarchy today, just like you control for it in the text. It's wow. so... It's, it's really true full because circle. it's so full circle because... So we'll talk about this later too, but like I'm translating the Bible right now and it's been met with like really great positive response and then some not so positive response but some of it is i'm so aware it's because i'm a woman and it Mm. wouldn't bother them so much if it was a man doing it and so i do i have to control for that and so that kind of takes the edge off a bit but it is a hard space just because i'm comfortable in my skin it does hurt my feelings because when someone says like basically just who you are and the way that you're trying to live for God or, you know, whatever it is that you're, you're trying to do in ministry here is, is hurtful and damaging to people. That hurts my feelings because it's part of who I am. Like I can't picture my, myself doing anything besides what I'm doing. And I also deeply believe that God created me beautifully for this way. So that is, that is, it is hurtful regardless if they're my friend or they're not. So I just want to make that clear. Cause I think some people think like, Oh, you're confident in what you're doing. And so those kind of things don't hurt your feelings and they still do. I just have to learn to control for it. And I have to also learn we're on a journey and I'm just going to give grace for that. And I also don't have to entertain it if I don't want to. (laughs) I would assume that you have more compassion for queer Christians given that because it's, Mm -hmm. it's kind of a similar base level Mm -hmm. critique that people have. The kind of thing that seems sort of obvious to them and to other people is a category error. Oh, absolutely. For cuz because for the longest time it was this weird feeling to be like, no, I'm liter I was literally made this way and you are telling me that that was wrong, that that's wrong. So are you telling me that God made me wrong or are you telling me that I it never made sense to me. And so when all these conversations like with, with queer Christians and the LGBTQ community came out and it was like, no, this is how God made me. I was like, oh, I totally get that. I, I, I understand that. And my husband and I have had a lot of conversations about that and we were discussing it and he, this is a long time ago because now we've come to the same page. But when we were first discussing this, you know, one thing he said is he was like, I, I don't understand that. And I said, well, you, that's because you've... N- the way you were made as a white male has never come into question as being wrong. So you don't have a framework for understanding that. Yeah. I have no idea. I was just realizing that. Like, I don't, I don't really know what it's like for anybody to say that something fundamental to my identity or my, even my loves, my Mm -hmm. giftings, whatever. And I mean, nobody has ever had a problem with the fact that I was in a rock band well, right, my in, my in laws maybe before <laughs> my wife. That's uh, a little different. Or that I like want to use my brain a bunch and right. Uh, you know, like none of that. None, there's never been an issue. If anything, people would say like, "Why don't you go to the gym more?" But uh, <laughs> it's not really like a moral failing, right? Or a spiritual failing. Actually, I think it might be. But anyway, so but it's not this innate of like no, yeah. who, the way you were made is that's not correct, exactly. and we don't believe. And you. I don't really. Yeah. I don't know what I. Th- how I, I don't know how I think about made, like God made me this way. I don't even really know if I, I have a good operating definition of what that means because Mm -hmm. of sort of evolution and chance and, you know, like a million sperm produces one, only one of them, you know, I don't know about all that. Right. right, Uh, And I don't know, you know, and I don't really know about the epigenetics and like the way that our environment affects us. 
And did God make the environment or do we kind of create the environment through our free choices? Partially we do, I think. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the idea that like you're saying that some central part of my identity is flawed and like God's obviously okay with me being this way. That, I get – I'm good that far. Mm-hmm. I just have – in my own – autobiographically, I have a lot of issues with sort of natural theology claims right now because I don't know – how much I think indeterminacy plays a role in causing events. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so, fair. I think, Dan, you have permission to think that thank way. Thank you. You're welcome. You. Uh, okay, this is my, my last thing before we get to, to Barb's questions, her concerns. You are working on this translation. You call it an idiomatic translation. It's mm-hmm. called Tim Schill. The sample passages that are available online are so cool. I'm very excited about it. Thank we will you. be talking about this again when it's like actually coming out. Cool. But just just give us a few minutes so that if people want to get like on your email list or whatever, this is you're going you're giving them the elevator pitch to like get on your email list to be notified about this. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a Tim Shell translation and an idiomatic translation means it pulls out the thoughts, feelings and emotions of the characters in the story that would be native to them that we can say, "Hey, based on the literary genre, the historical and cultural context, the language used here, and what we know about human psychology and our shared human experience, this is what a person in this situation might feel. So, for example, in the passage online, you know, we have Abraham and Isaac, and it's when God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. And so we sort of draw that out, like, why would God do that? What is it that Abraham would be feeling for God to ask him that? What is Isaac feeling? Like, what's playing in here historically? Was, <laughs> like, was Abraham a monotheist? Or were there other things at play here? So we draw that out, but instead of putting it in a way that's like in a commentary, I'm a writer, so I put it in the text so it reads like a story. So anybody could pick it up. But the hope is that it really draws out questions and discussions and people wrestle with it the way that the text was originally designed for us to do, and that people read it in a way that drives them to a deeper understanding of the text and of the culture, rather than looking at it as like an instruction book or even just non-applicable to their lives. Okay. So my wonderful godmother, Barb, had some questions for you. I know, and, and I didn't even read these. them, so I'm kind of nervous now because I didn't prepare. That's okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so the first one we've really already done. She just mentioned the, the first Timothy two right. stuff, which is not permitting a woman to teach. But I think we've handled that pretty sufficiently. We don't need to go back <laughs> to that passage. Okay. But here's one we haven't talked about very much. Quote: Eve was made from man and was deceived by the serpent. End uh-huh. quote. Barb's like, uh, there's something there. Paul seems to say it. What do we do with that part of the narrative? I guess. Do you believe that Eve was literally taken? From man, or do you believe that that's figurative of God just saying, "Hey, you guys are connected, and I am making you, like I said earlier, your complete other half." So, wh- right, what, what, what is what I would ask her? You know, like, what's your take there? And then also, Eve deceived by the serpent. What's interesting is that God gave the command not to eat to Adam before Eve was even there. So then when the serpent comes and talks to Eve, he's talking to her, but she didn't even get the original command. Do you know what I mean? And what's interesting, basically he's saying, like, did he really say that you're going to die? And her response is, is like, yeah, you know, like he said, 
we were going to die and we were, you know, yeah, he does say that. And then she even kind of adds on to it. So to me, I see that that happened. I see that he tempted her. I see that she ate it and she wanted this wisdom. Well, I also don't think the tree is really knowledge of good and evil. She obviously knows the difference of good and evil already. If she's like debating whether to eat the tree, eat the fruit, the tree is really wisdom in this idea that like we have a temptation in life to take wisdom before it's necessarily given to us as a way to sort of solve problems or to get our brains around high anxiety situations or whatever that may be. And and as a mom, even specifically, I really relate to that because like, if I think something's wrong, like with my kid, like if they're sick or something, I will, before I, you know, like stop and calm down, meditate, take a few deep breaths, decide, okay, what what do I know? And what should I do next? My first go-to is like, I'm going to research all the things. I'm going to fill up my brain with all these ideas and this wisdom to hopefully get an answer. And I don't have to And so when she eats from the tree, it's this idea of it's not that all of a sudden she knew good and bad. It was like it's this idea that she's taking wisdom that isn't hers, that we actually get from God in a relationship with him, that we work out and we come to him and he asks us. And so the sin isn't that she's trying to be God. The sin is that she's not she's trying to take wisdom on her own terms. And so for me. When I understand the scripture that way, that changes things. She's not just being deceived and doesn't have an idea. Is she sees wisdom is good. And she sees I'm supposed to make wise decisions to care for this garden and to care for Adam and to and so of course I would want wisdom. But I also don't have a problem with that she was deceived. We all are at some point in our lives. So for me, that doesn't raise an issue of Therefore, you know, we can't trust women because I also don't believe that just because Eve did it, even if you even if you take Eve as literal, I don't believe that just because she did it, then all women will do it. Great answer. Thank you. Barb has this argument, which is interesting. We know somewhere from Paul that an elder must be the husband of one wife and isn't an elder less than a preacher. So wouldn't a preacher at least have to be a husband of one wife or or not married or whatever, but like not a woman? That's her question. I think an elder is above a preacher. Oh, interesting. Or, I think that might be like a evangelical thing because, uh-huh. yeah, we, we were at a Presbyterian church for a long time and the elders can fire the head pastor. Yeah. so They have more power than the pastor. So has. in every organized church situation I've been in, that's been the case. The elder has been above. Now, again, I would have to go back and look at that, but I also think women can be elders. So like part of my story was that like, I was like, okay, and this is how I know that women can be preachers, but they just can't be elders. Like I was there for a while and now I'm like, oh no, they can also, they can also be elders. So I'd actually have to go and look at the context of that. If he's just saying that because it's a patriarchal society. And so the idea isn't husband, male and female, one wife, if the idea is, the symbiotic relationship that you work together and and you don't have multiple wives. I mean, that was also a thing, you know what I mean, in society. So right. I'd really have to look at that. And I mean, it's also worth noting that Barb herself is an elder. Barb! <laughs> she is. She is an elder at uh, the church where Good I job, grew up. Good job, Barb. That's awesome. I want to so, meet Barb now. Oh, she's the best, man. Okay, here's her next one. Right. With male and female psychology... Is there something that we don't know that maybe God does know that Paul was inspired to understand? Like, 
Should we submit to role differentiation as a kind of holy mystery that relates to the way that our selves work? I think you could. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that we don't know that God knows. Like, I feel like that for me goes without saying. And I think there's a lot of things that are a holy mystery, but I don't necessarily think we have to submit in favor to role differentiation as part of that holy mystery. I would be more comfortable saying, let's submit in favor of equality as part of a holy mystery that we don't necessarily understand. And the reason why I say that is that I do think we see kind of like this ramp that we've been talking about, this trajectory of God's whole purpose is to further push out equality and justice and like redemption. And so if we're doing that, then we get back to get back to how he originally planned it in the Garden of Eden, which was totally this mutual relationship, an equal relationship. So I would rather err on the side of submitting to equality and include everybody and include women and say, hey, like, you can absolutely preach and who you are is important than I would submit to. No, I'm not sure. Because because one lends to a view of God that he is loving and encompassing and gives grace, where for me, the other is like, I'm not sure if we're going to get in trouble if women do this by God. And so I'm just not going to do that. And I don't believe that God is there to get us in trouble. So for me, I, I, I would rather submit holy mystery to the other side of things. Yeah. These last two are kind of combined, and we uh-huh. did sort of get to these earlier, but we'll just maybe tie it up in a bow here. If we say that women and men are equal before God ministry-wise, are we also committed to saying there are no differences between men and women? We said, no, we're not committed to that. Right. Right. We both are bell curve distribution types. Uh-huh. If there are real differences, either binary or in a bell curve distribution, which I mentioned to her, do those differences matter for ordination, for preaching, et cetera? That's a good question. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that there are, but I, I don't think that that necessarily matters. I think I think preaching and ordination and things like that should be much more of like a gifting and a calling than it should be of roles. I mean, I can think of a lot of male preachers that clearly aren't very great at it and don't even like it maybe. And same, yeah. you know, same thing for a female, but I'm saying I can see more male because like it, that might be that was like, this is the path for you. You know, it's like a Christian male. This is what you need to do. So I don't know. I, I look at it as I think men and women can do it. I think anyone can do anything, but I think being placed within a role of your own giftedness is a different matter. Bonnie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This uh, was fun. We will. We're going to hear from Barb now. <laughs> and get her response. But before we do, do you have an email list or did I make that up? No, you, you have to sign up for it. So you can either, if you go to uh, Kickstarter and Google Tim Shell translation mm-hmm. you'll, and go to the FAQs, you can submit it there. Or you can find me, Tim Shell translation, or myself on Instagram and you could submit it there. Okay, now we get to go back to the lovely, lovely Barb Clark, my godmother, and get her response, not only to this conversation with Bonnie, but remember, I gave her additional homework to go back and listen to the Carol and Custis James episode, which is also what I told you to do at the beginning of this episode. So she's responding to all of that, and we had a really nice sort of wrap it all up 
kind of chat. So here's that chat with Barb. Barb, thank you so much for coming back on the show. There's thank a lot you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> There's kind of a lot to to talk through here. You had a lot of particular questions that I asked Bonnie, and I gave you extra homework to listen to the Carolyn Custis James patriarchy episode because they're so they're so tied together. Right. Let's just start with let's start with that. Let's start with the the Carolyn Custis James patriarchy episode. Any takeaways from listening to that? Well, probably the hugest takeaway for me from that was that I had not fully understood the use of Ezer in the Old Testament. Yeah. And I was like completely shocked to discover uh, what Ezer actually meant and that how many times it was used in relationship to God and God helping his people and God being their help and shield. Her, I think she used the term warrior language. Or maybe yeah, it's Bonnie like usually used they they both talked about that. It's yeah. in like it's like ninety five percent of uses in the Old Testament. There's like some military connotation, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so um, I did. I really appreciated that perspective because I do think I've had a very uh, probably patriarchal view of it. A helper suitable for him. Oh, honey, can I make your breakfast? You know, yeah. I will. I will help you so you can be successful, as opposed to I am coming alongside you. We together face the world. We together, you know, side by side slay the dragons. And so, uh, so that was actually very helpful. It also was helpful for me to go back and read the Genesis one, two, and three account, and. Um, and recognize, especially in Genesis 1, you know, God created man, then, you know, male and female, he created them uh, in, him, in his image. And at that point, there is no talk about uh, any kind of headship or patriarchy of any kind. So that was, you know, kind of valuable for me. Yeah, something that both <clears throat> Carolyn and Bonnie share in how they read the text is this really strong emphasis on the pre-fall Yes. What God says about humanity before the fall. Yeah. Which I guess I'm looking at it in a different light now because it's been a couple months since I thought about it that way. And my problem with it has always been I don't believe in a fall, like a Mm -hmm. a moment Mm -hmm. in history. And so I, but I, but I guess like that doesn't necessarily matter for the literary approach of like if you, if you think of it like in the story, this is Mm -hmm. before we sin. This is sort yes. of like what yes. God thinks of us in the raw, maybe right. you might say. Right. What was his intent in creation yeah. and what was his intent in creating man? And actually something Bonnie said that struck me was that it wasn't like God was, that man was lonely and needed someone, but that when he said, I, you know, I'll make a helper suitable for him, it was more like that a person connected to him and connecting to him or completing him, that man alone in the male form was not the full expression of the creation of humankind. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so I appreciated that perspective too. And just hearing that articulated, it really resonated with me, made sense to me. Sometimes I've had a little bit of a struggle because of this whole concept of smashing the patriarchy. It yeah. sounds so militant. Oh gosh, I probably shouldn't have said that, but because that <laughs> no, might turn some okay. people off. But um, 
because I don't, you know, for myself, I don't see myself as militant, uh, you know, like a militant feminist or something like that. And so I've resisted that phraseology. Yeah. And I've also questioned whether patriarchy was a, like, was that how God set it up? So I felt like both of their conversations really opened my eyes to patriarchy being more about a cultural norm rather than a created norm. Um, yeah. Okay. So moving on to Bonnie, general thoughts, like general amount you were swayed or persuaded, general amount you were like, that's interesting. That's not enough to really move the needle for the me. Needle. And then we'll get into some specifics. Um. So generally... It was a really interesting conversation, Dan. And I felt like you guys went way beyond just women's ordination. For me, I would say uh, the huge thing that came out for me from Bonnie's conversation had more to do with how you and maybe Bonnie and maybe moving a needle a little for me and how I view the scriptures. And I'm not talking about the specific scriptures about the passages yeah. and the, the particular passages, but kind of the view of scripture in general. And I could go into more details. Please about... do. This is like the most exciting thing you could say. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So first of all, um, the fact that both you and Bonnie appear to have a non-literal account of Genesis. Yeah. So interestingly, even in my own mind, I could get past a literal seven day creation by saying those seven days could be epochs or some kind of period of history. But I had never really considered, uh, I I really never heard of Genesis one, two, one and two in particular being poetry. Yeah. And I, you know, I do know that we interpret poetry differently than we interpret say other types of literature. And so, um, so I don't even know where to hang my hook on all of that right that's now. Fine. But it you, certainly if that's fine. new, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly making me think more about what was God's intent as opposed to was this a literal moment in time when poof, there was no man, and then poof, there was man, and it was Adam, and then there was man, a woman, and it was Eve. Um so I, it's just making me think about that. That kind of blew my mind. Okay. Yeah. Um, that yeah. was kind of mind blowing for me. The other thing was something you said. I mean, this has to do with view of scripture because that was kind of a bigger conversation that came out for me from your conversation with Bonnie. You mentioned that uh, the Book of Mormon and the Quran, well, I can't remember exactly how you put it, but you said something about them being uh, literally dictated, Yeah, right? a dictation model of inspiration. A dictation yeah. model of inspiration. Mm-hmm. And I know, you know, from the stories of Muhammad going into the cave that he heard recite, and then he heard things, he memorized them, he came out, he recited them. And that became the Quran, or Joseph Smith put on his glasses, interpreted the golden plates, etc. And so, because I've had this view of um, scripture as being, you know, infallible, inerrant, all yeah. these ins, whatever, um, it was very interesting from here for me to hear you guys talking about the Jewish scriptures being something that people debated over and discussed. I mean, they obviously had a huge spiritual context, but that they were cultural and historical in a different way, and maybe even inspired in a completely different way than a word-for-word type of inspiration. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. yeah. Well, which, which then yeah. does change 
you know, it, it does allow for some questioning of if these are cultural historical documents, then how do I relate to them in a, in a new time, in a new era? And you yeah. might respond to that. And I'm curious how you, if you can um, interrogate your own feelings, you can respond to that with excitement. You mm-hmm. can respond to that with fear or dread. Uh, because where will the bedrock be? Um, do can you do you know? Is it both? Is it one or the other? Primarily, well, you know, I think I think there's a little bit of both. Um, you know, certainly, I do not want to uh, jump off the evangelical island of Christianity, if you will, into deep waters that I have no understanding of. Um, especially if there is something something uh, inherently. Uh, incorrect in that view. Does that make sense? On the other hand, on the other hand, um, you know, certainly, you know, you can read a lot of scripture and go, whoa, what is this about? Oh man, you've got to be kidding. And especially portions of the old Testament, very troublesome. Okay. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so it's both, it's a raft out of the problems, but it's, but it's in these deep waters, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's well, that resonates end. with me, and I think probably most of our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, there's a lot of things I could ask you because you had a lot of questions for Bonnie, and then yeah. um, something came up in our our chat as well earlier that I want to. So I'm going to kind of cherry pick here a few things, okay. and we'll we'll be happy with those. So okay, one of the things you said was sometimes I wonder. Well, was Paul just aware of something that we're not aware of, and we should submit to the fact that he knew something about men and women's maybe psychology yeah. or whatever did yeah. did you feel like you got any answers for that or does that is that similarly a kind of a nagging question you know i can't remember exactly how bonnie put it but what i appreciated what she said because what she said is um there's always mystery i think she said something to the effect of there's always mystery they're always going to god is bigger than we are right there are a lot of things we don't know so i was questioning is there something in the psychology of men and women that that god knows that we don't what she my impression of what she said was that if there there's definitely mystery but the, but you could look at it from the other side. There is something about in the equality of men and women that God knows that we have distorted because right. of our patriarchal cultural viewpoint. So that actually was very powerful for me because, um, you know, kind of the emphasis of, okay, if you're going to live in a mystery, why not live in the mystery of inclusiveness and equality as opposed to living in the mystery of uh, a cultural norm um, of patriarchy? So that actually was very powerful for me. You had a couple kind of comments mm-hmm. and things that I brought up with Bonnie, but that also came out in our conversation about, you know, can I be a, uh, an egalitarian without being like a radical feminist? Basically there's, and this yes. is a, a real problem in 2019. I think just if you pay attention to any of the news and, you mm-hmm. know, what's going on in Berkeley, which is just down the street from mm-hmm. you and, and yeah. like, and then you talked about, you know, dealing with your daughter and your daughter-in-law and they're further mm-hmm. left than you on a lot of this stuff. And so you're like, can I, can I have this position without going like full, you know, full bore? Full yeah. Do butch, I have to put the t-shirt arm, on? Armpit hair. Exactly. Yeah. Burn yeah. your bra. Yeah. Uh, so how did, do you feel like, uh, there was any, uh, movement on that or any clarity on that, those kind of, that clump of questions? So, 
I do. I do. I, I, I think the understanding of Ezra was huge. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, so that alone kind of, I can see a beginning of a shift in my mindset of what am I here for, not just as a person, but as a woman. And, um, and it is not just to make sure my husband's life is good. Right. But it's also not, oh, you're just exactly the same as him with no yes. distinction. Yes. So Very that's true. maybe how that's kind of a, a middle way for you. I yes. see that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I think some of us have more passionate natures in general or have passions for various things. So I don't feel like I have to become a radical feminist of some kind. I thought it was interesting. You asked Bonnie about Christian feminist or, yeah. or feminist, Cri- yeah, theology. feminist theology. Yeah. yeah. Feminist theology. And, uh, and so I looked up that first, second, and third wave of feminism and kind of understand historical time periods and what people were working for during those times. So that was interesting for me to see. And certainly, there's much of the feminist agenda that I can embrace. Um, the one thing I want us to be very careful of, and Chris, my husband and I have talked about this to some extent, is that somehow we do not demonize men in the process. Well, better, Bonnie, better. I thought, had a good way into that by saying men are also victims of patriarchy. Mm, like demonize mm-hmm. patriarchy, yeah. don't demonize men. Men. Men exactly. are born into patriarchy yeah. just like women are born into patriarchy. Right. Fight the yeah. evil of the system, not evil evil people, basically. Right. Although there are a handful right. of those, but mostly oh, certainly, not. Right. Certainly. And there are people who will certainly misuse power or misuse sure. uh, other things. And, and certainly, you know, the whole concept of the white male privilege in particular, you know, Chris really experienced that when he was doing uh, chaplaincy training and, you know, his group really helped him see, you cannot see fruit through our eyes as a black yeah. woman from the South, as a Sikh from India, as, you know, he, I mean, he just yeah. had a wide variety of people he was working with. And um, some of his uh, presuppositions were not held by the group. And he had to come to terms with that. So, um, so yeah, I would say this probably will make me more of a of a feminist in hopefully a godly spiritual way. Yeah. 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 Okay. Last two things. The, the, my favorite moment was when Bonnie was like, I think an elder is above a pastor. Oh my gosh. Mind blown. (laughs) Okay. What did you think of that moment? Well, it's so interesting because, uh, that was a very mind blowing moment for me also. And I would say, um, I, our church, the church where I am an elder, is a congregationally led church. Uh, our bylaws state that for a pastor to be fired, it has to be by a vote of the congregation, which okay. is very difficult. So, but I will tell you what, the elder board can make the life of a pastor very difficult. <laughs> Does so you obviously have some power over them, yeah. Yeah, and so that actually was very radical for me and and kind of made me say yeah i was looking on the board uh, because it's my Mm -hmm. old church i grew up in and and like there are a lot of faces on that elder board that have been there a lot longer than the many head pastors who have yes oh absolutely that is absolutely true yeah i would say most of us have been under the tenure of two three maybe even four senior pastors and ours senior pastors tend to stay longer than most, like a period of usually of about 10 years. Right. So, Okay. Yeah. And then the last thing, this came up 
chatting with you, your uh, your daughter, Katie, my god sister, yes. she challenged you at one point, you said, and she said, Mom, if you had felt like it was a possibility, mm-hmm. would you have wanted to be a pastor mm-hmm. yourself? Mm-hmm. Um, and now, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's not necessarily too late, but, you know, you're... Yeah, almost, yeah, it's had a whole different had a career. Whole career right? You're... Yeah. Kids are grown. Approaching retirement. Yes, yeah. exactly. But like, that's a, that, I love that question. It's a hard one. Did mm-hmm. you spend any time sort of thinking through that in light of these conversations? You know, I did. And actually it was touched a little bit by Bonnie's story. It sounds like she came out of a pretty fundamentalist, maybe evangelical background as a complementarian at the beginning and, and had to work through her own, uh, maybe resistance. Is that correct, Dan? That, that for her to get to the point where she could say, I can be ordained. I can yeah. be. I mean, she's something like yeah. 30 years younger than you ish. I don't right. know exactly how old each of you are, but yeah. Uh, but even then, so she had yes. a 30 year jump on you sort of in terms of the culture. And right. even for her, it was quite uphill. Yeah, it was. Yes, exactly. So I think, um, I think if I had been born now, or if I was maybe Bonnie's age, I might have felt the freedom to pursue uh, ministry, but in particular, preaching ministry. You know, I, I have a love for the Word of God. Uh, I like to analyze it. I like to think about how things are connected and uh, feel that I do have gifts of teaching, which I've used as an educator. Um, but, you know, for a while, I ran the chapels for our school, and I had a couple of people, including my principal, say to me, Barb, when you grow up, you're going to be a pastor, you know, but when you're, I know, I know. So, um, so I think maybe the answer is yes. In a different day and time, I might have pursued, uh, ministry as a, as a profession. Yeah. Or a calling or a vocation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's no better place to end than that. Barb, thank you so much for your time, both interviews and listening to both long episodes really appreciate it love having you in my life thank you dan and uh we'll talk later okay god bless you bye i hope this was a helpful episode for you guys um big thank you to josh gilbert for editing that very long conversation with bonnie I have links in the show notes to my Bad Christian episode with Bonnie from the conference, as well as a direct link to the Tim Schull translation on Kickstarter. Don't have to go to Kickstarter and search. So all that's there for you. Um, Join the Patreon. You know why. Patreon.com slash Dan Coke or youhavepermissionpod.com. Click become a patron. Five bucks. Feel good about yourself. Um, There is also the Facebook group, which is for patrons only. There's a link to that in the show notes. Share this episode with a friend or loved one or a family member and let me know how that goes. You have permission podcast at gmail.com. See you guys in two weeks. Bye.